Who here owns a uh, musical instrument? Hands up. Most of you, I think, maybe. So who here um, has one that you haven't played in over a year? Hands up. Similar amount, right? It's a little telling. When I interned at a church in North Carolina, we helped a couple move, and um, then another couple piggybacked on their U-Haul rental to pick up a piano. And we helped them get it because the wife wanted to learn how to play. And it was the heaviest piano I've ever helped anyone move. There were like four of us, could hardly make it budge. We had to go to the rental store, get the piano dolly. I've moved this one, and this has nothing on it. Um, so there we were, get it around to their house finally. So naturally, if you know me, I don't let things sit. Um, so whenever we'd go over there, I'd ask if she could play something for us to show put her on the spot to show that our labor was not in vain. As most of you can probably guess, she wouldn't play, probably because she hadn't practiced. But they've got a piano now, but do they have it in vain? Or for all of you who have these musical instruments that you haven't Marie Kondoed over the last year, do you have them in vain? They weren't made to sit there untouched. They were made to be played. They were made to make music. They weren't sitting there. You probably didn't even get it, so it'd sit there and collect dust. And yet, here we are. Do we do the same thing with the grace of God? Do we believe in him for our salvation and then move on with our lives, still pursuing everything this world promotes? Do we treat being reconciled to God as something that we just need to check off of our list before we die, so then we're good? And as if being reconciled to God is not the goal of our lives itself. Are we made new, as we heard last week, but then live as if we're still the same? I think if we're honest, we all do this to differing extents. We live out of the old and not of the new And in that, we can relate to the Corinthians in this passage as Paul appeals to them not to receive the grace of God in vain. So let's hear God's word from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 13. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. 
Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would open your word to us that we might understand that your Holy Spirit would move it from our ears to our brains to our hearts to our hands. That it would play out in our lives. That we would come to know your power in our lives. Work in us, change us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here at Emmaus Road, we work our way through different books of the Bible, and so we're continuing on in 2 Corinthians this morning, and our passage is really intimately connected to what has come before. So some in the church of Corinth, the church that Paul started, one that he planted, as we say, they've rejected his authority, and this is especially due to some of his suffering and what appears like weakness. So he's been defending his ministry for these last few chapters, and it hasn't been this detached defense. He's, he's been real with them about his experience, even about his emotion and his experience of pain from them. He's also impassioned with the grace of God in it, where we see this surpassing power held in jars of clay. And just before our passage last week, Paul reiterated God's grace again through this message of reconciliation, that God is reconciling the world to himself, that he's restoring this relationship through Jesus, that though we were created to love him, to know him, to live in perfect harmony with him, our sin, the ways we have rejected him and worshipped and gone after other things in this world, they have broken that relationship. They've severed it in a way that we cannot repair. But his only son, Jesus, became a man like us, took on flesh. But unlike us, he lived a perfect life, what we were meant to do but didn't, what we were created for but failed in. And we saw last week, for our sake, he took our sin, and he gives us his righteousness our sin for his righteousness, this great exchange that reconciles us to God, that restores our relationship with him. And we see that it's not something we do, even last week, it's be reconciled to God, not reconcile yourselves to God. We only receive it by faith. Jesus saves us by his death and resurrection on the cross, but he doesn't leave us there. He makes us new. We saw this last week. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, behold, the old has gone, the new has come. He died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him, as Paul said in verse 15, or that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, as we saw in our assurance of pardon today. So we have this exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness. We're made new. We're to live for him. And as many of the guys heard at the men's retreat this last couple days, we can't have this orthodoxy, this right knowledge, this right belief without it resulting in orthopraxy, right practice, right living. It has to play out in our lives. So last week, God made his appeal to the Corinthians through Paul. He said, be reconciled to God. 
And that happens when we first confess our sins and trust in him. And now in verse 1, he says, working together with God, there's this other appeal, not to receive the grace of God in vain. So we ask, what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? That's kind of what's um, overarching over this whole passage here. What does that mean? Paul says something similar about God's grace not being in vain back in his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 15, verse 10, he said, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It wasn't in vain. Instead, he worked harder. That's the comparison. That's what's equated there. Though it was God's work at grace in him. So that's what I think Paul is meaning here as well. To receive God's grace isn't a failure to believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God. It's failing to steward and live out of that grace. It's becoming a new creation and acting as if we're still the old. It's getting a piano and never learning to play. It's failing to put God's grace into action. We have to have orthopraxy. Not to save us, but because his grace has been poured out on us. Look at the reason Paul gives for it in verse 2. He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As we saw in our call to worship, he's quoting Isaiah 49. It's one of the servant songs that's in the middle of this section of Isaiah where God's promising to restore his people. He's promising to bring in the nations what the Old Testament viewed as this end times restoration, the day of favor, the day of salvation. And Paul says, behold, now is the time of favor. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Look, it's here. What everyone has longed for, you're living in it right now. Christ has died and risen again. Jews and Gentiles, the nations themselves, are united to him and reconciled to God by faith. It's here. It's like 2016 for a Cubs fan, right? After 107 years without a World Series, it's finally here. So how should they respond? By living in reality of that win by celebrating, you don't act like it's still 2003 when they choked in game six of the NLCS. Right? Or it's like your wedding day or a vacation that you've been looking forward to for months or maybe even years. When that day comes, how do you act? You don't get up and go to work. You live in light of the reality that that day has arrived. It's finally here. That's where Paul grounds this motivation to be faithful. Their moment in redemptive history that what people have been waiting for is here. What God has promised through the prophets is here. It's now for you. You've been made new. By God's grace, act like it. For the Corinthians, this message of Jesus was still pretty fresh news. But I think for many of us, especially who have grown up in the church, we've grown accustomed to it. We take it 
for granted. It's been this way for almost 2,000 years. We're still in this place where God's salvation has come, but the restoration of all things is still future, this already and not yet. We know nothing of that but, but that time, right? Where it's available but still far off. For many of us, it seems like nothing new, and we assume that it's just going to keep going this way. For many of us, it's pretty easy for us to get pretty comfortable today and not really care about salvation, to not think about the things of God. We live in the wealthiest country in the wealthiest time in the history of the world. We're surrounded by comforts and things to distract us, make our lives easier. When we become discontent, we look to the next thing, and because of where we are, we can often get it. The better house, the right kind of family, a relationship or job that we'll think will give our lives meaning. There's so much around us that can occupy our minds and distract us from thinking about anything eternal, from things of God or eternity or why we're actually here. Just push it away. Let the next episode stream but if we're honest, deep in our souls, we know there's something more, don't we? We know these things only satisfy for a moment. That's why when we get it, it's not long before we're discontent again. We long for something more, and we're made more acutely aware of it when things aren't going well. I mean, I think we all know this right now. When we deal with deep political division, divisions over Everything COVID that divides close friends and families, we long for unity. When we see racism or war, we long for justice. When family members and friends get sick or die, we long for health and life. We see death for the intruder that it truly is. In these moments when we're confronted with this, this shroud within which we try to build our nice, neat, clean lives is just removed. And if we look at it, we know things are not the way that they're supposed to be. In these moments, we know that there's something more, something outside of us. In these moments, we're shown the need for restoration, for salvation. And this is the good news Paul gives that day's here. Now is the day of salvation. While we look around and see all these familiar stains of sin and decay, all who trust in Christ have been made new. The first fruits have come in. Light has broken into the darkness. God has shone into our hearts to give us the light and knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Restoration has begun and it's spreading through his kingdom as this message of reconciliation grows. And one day it will be made complete when he returns. Be reconciled to God. Trust in Christ. And do not receive his grace in vain. Trust in him for your salvation. 
knowing he will set all things right and live for him in light of it, that others might likewise glimpse this truer reality, that they might likewise know true and lasting love and hope and peace, even amidst chaos. Paul goes on to describe his ministry among them, how he has brought this message to them. In verse 3 he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Now in math and in English, uh, double negatives make a positive, but not in Greek. In Greek they emphasize things. Nothing in no one's way is how this sentence starts. Absolutely nothing impeding absolutely no one. The proclamation of this salvation is too important. We will hinder you in no way. Instead, they commend their ministry, what they've been through and done. This is how they put nothing in no one's way. He starts by listing these difficulties. By great endurance, which sounds great, right? But if you've had to endure things, you know that it's not great. <laughs> you've been suffering for a long time with them. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. That's how he commends it. How are these not obstacles? Is this who you want to listen to? Is this who you want to follow? These are some of the very reasons that they're rejecting Paul's ministry. When we see people like that, what do we think? They're doing something wrong. They're not being responsible. They're not making wise choices. Isn't that our instinct? We could fix it for them. Why should we listen to them? They should listen to us. We could tell them a thing or two about how to manage their finances and they wouldn't have to worry about this hunger. Wouldn't have to worry about not having a place to sleep. We could tell them how they should be politically conscious as they speak. If you'd say things a little differently, if you'd take a different tack, blunt the edges a little bit, compromise here and there, then you wouldn't have to suffer like this. People would accept you more. It's almost the Aaron Burr mindset from Hamilton, right? Talk less, smile more, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. What's the end for Burr? He's left out of the room where it happens, right? He views his life as a failure. When we look down at or diminish Paul's ministry because of these difficulties, are we not looking at him the way the world does, like our culture does? Are we not looking at what the world values over and above what our own Lord practices? Because if we're looking down on Paul here, we're looking down on our Savior in whose steps he is following. But when we look not at the outside, not according to the flesh, as Paul said recently, but at the inside, According to the Spirit, we see the power of God in these jars of clay. As Paul mentioned before, despite this internal affliction, we see purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, 
the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God, and weapons of righteousness. A list similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. We see this paradox of life and ministry in this present age, in this day of salvation where we've already been made new, but so much is still old. Where Christ has come, but he has not restored all things. We see aspects of these put side by side in verses 8 to 10. Honor and dishonor, slander and praise, treated like imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and not killed, as sorrowful yet rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. It's paradoxical. things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. But which do we look for? Which do we value? Which do we want for ourselves? And by saying this is how he commends his ministry, he's saying the opposite would be true, that if I didn't suffer, if everything was easy for me, if I looked successful from the world's perspective, you wouldn't see that my strength isn't in me, but it's in Christ. That would hinder his ministry. If it looked like I was living my best life, but dying on the inside, if I always looked joyful, but was utterly depressed, if I had everything and nothing satisfied, I would be offering you enslavement, not salvation. And many of you have experienced those very things, have you not? And these are the exact same things we hear and see from celebrities, the ones we envy. People like Robin Williams or Chris Farley, always making others laugh, but depressed on the inside to the point of death. People like Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl and saying there has to be more to life than this. Jim Carrey saying, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed so that they can see that it's not the answer. There are a thousand other quotes like this. But even though they say these things, we still try to follow them. We think we'd be different. For us, it would be enough. It won't. Paul's got it right. He's following Jesus, the one who created us, the one who knows us, the one who loves us, the one who will give us exactly what we need, the only one who can satisfy us, the only one who can give us rest and peace. Jesus said that if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. It might not look flashy, It definitely won't be easy, though one could argue no life truly is. You've probably heard the saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true insofar as it goes. Um, But one of my seminary professors would say it this way, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. That's the truth, isn't it? It is wonderful. But it is difficult. But he sustains us. 
He empowers us. Why should it be easy? It wasn't easy for Jesus. And he was perfect. Don't we want to be like him? Isn't that our goal? Don't we want to see his power at work in us? It won't be easy, but it will be good. And it will be worth it. And one day this light and momentary affliction will give way to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. After commending his ministry, Paul turns to the Corinthians to compare their postures. He addresses them directly here. He says, Corinthians, like calling you by name, Freddie, Dan, Aaron. He knows them. He loves them. He says, we've spoken freely to you. We've been honest about it. Our heart is wide open. It's enlarged for you. You get this sense of space, of room to breathe. And then he says that on the contrary, the Corinthians are restricted. That word is they're pressed in, they're constrained. They're being squeezed. Not by Paul and his ministry, but by their own affections. By what their hearts are directed toward. By what they love. And they might not even notice it because they don't know any different. But it can be so much better. So Paul talks to them not as a condescending adult talking down to children, but as a loving father who wants to see them flourish and thrive. And he urges them to widen your hearts also. There's so much more. To respond to him and his message as he has to them with love for God and love for neighbor. For them to see that Paul's ministry is not illegitimate, but that it looks like their saviors. And for them to love him and the one to whom his ministry points. Will you continue to be restricted by two narrow affections? Will you love and desire and go after temporal things God has created or will you love and desire and go after God himself who will give you all things? I'll close with a quote from C.S. Lewis, 20th century Oxford professor and writer. He famously wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Do not be so easily pleased. Stop restricting yourself by your own affections. Widen your heart. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. For now is the day of salvation. Abandon the slum and come to the sea.